Hi, I'm Laura Cox Kaplan. You're listening to She Said, She Said. Carly Fiorina is the former CEO of Hewlett Packard. She was the first woman to lead a Fortune 20 company. She also oversaw the largest technology sector merger in history. When she ran for the Republican nomination for president in 2016, it certainly wasn't the first time she had been the only woman on the stage, the only woman in the boardroom, or the only woman in the meeting. She is a trailblazer. Her new book, entitled Find Your Way, is focused on helping people to lead, to empower themselves and others. Carly, I'm so thrilled to be here with you today. Welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. It's great to be with you. Well, I'm delighted to be here and also delighted to be here in your studio. So thank you for hosting us. Not at all. Welcome. (laughs) Thank you. Many people are familiar with your work at Hewlett Packard. They're also familiar with your run for president, but they may not be as familiar with the tremendous work that you're doing today around leadership. Talk a little bit about what you're working on. Well, all my life, I have been motivated, inspired, actually, by helping people achieve more than they think they can. You know, there's a look people get when they do more than they think they could. And it's a look that just fuels me. And so I've spent time in business, building teams and building problem-solving leaders. And so now we're focused on building problem-solving leaders in communities all across the country through our our work at the Unlocking Potential Foundation. Uh, We also do this work in businesses of all sizes. And really, I wrote the book, Find Your Way, so that a reader can start to understand how much potential each of us have to become problem solvers, which is the purpose of leadership, actually. Mm -hmm. Let's dig into that notion of leadership, because there does seem to be confusion about what does it mean to be a leader? Well, I think our culture has um, decided that leaders are people with title, with position, with power. I used to think that. I started out as a secretary and I thought, oh, the leader is the guy, it was usually a guy, the leader is the guy with a big corner office. And I think our culture has said it's position, it's title, it's wealth, it's fame, it's power. Now, there are leaders who have all those things, but that's not why they're leaders. A leader is someone who changes the order of things for the better. A leader is someone who tackles and solves festering problems. A leader is someone who fulfills their own potential, but importantly, unlocks potential in others. And in that way, every one of us can be a leader. And I know from experience that every one of us is capable of being a leader. It's just, we don't always know that. And so we don't always unlock our own leadership potential. Where does character fall as you think about leadership? Oh, it's critical. I think there are four fundamental components of leadership, four disciplines of leadership, courage, collaboration, seeing possibilities, and character. And character 
first of all, I think character is destiny, actually. Um, <laughs> I think your character becomes your destiny. It may take a long time. But character is what you rely on when the going gets tough and the going always gets tough. Character is knowing that how you do things matters as much over the long term as what you do. Because how you do things can make a huge difference in how successful what you do is. Character is integrity over time, honor over time, courage over time, consistency over time. And so when I see people who have achieved great position and who lack character, my view is it's only a matter of time before that lack of character catches up with them. Yeah, absolutely. Your efforts are not gender specific, but because this is the She Said, She Said podcast, I'm interested in your views on when you think about women as leaders, are there elements that are truly unique to women versus men? Well, yes, I think there are. First of all, I'm, I'm fond of saying that leaders look different, but the fundamentals of leadership are always the same. And that is true. However, I think women come at it with some advantages, although many women don't realize this. The first advantage is that because women so frequently don't have the position or the title or the power, we get focused on the results, on actually doing something. I didn't, just as an example, I didn't set out to become a CEO. It never occurred to me that I had the potential to rise in corporate America. So I got focused on results instead, problem solving. So we have to focus on the outcomes because we frequently don't have the trappings. That's one advantage, although it sometimes feels like a disadvantage. I think another advantage is because we focus on outcomes. Women are natural problem solvers. Women have so many problems in their lives. They're multitasking all the time, trying to solve problems for themselves, for others, in their families, in their communities, in their work life. And problem solving is sort of the point of leadership. And so because women focus on problem solving, they also get really focused on collaborating with other people. And leaders collaborate. And so women, I think, bring humility to the table. That's not the same thing as false modesty. It's humility, knowing what we bring, but also knowing what others bring and that we need others. And frequently women bring empathy to the table, the ability to value someone else's experience. So all those things, a focus on results, a focus on problem solving, an ability to collaborate, coming to a situation with humility and empathy, those give women a leg up in the leadership game. Yeah. Can you dig in a little more to this notion of humility? Mm. Talk about a little bit deeper about what that means from your perspective. Well, the reason I said humility is not false modesty is I think sometimes we get that mixed up. I think sometimes right. frequently women get that mixed up. And we apologize. Yeah, we say, no, 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 not me. I didn't do it well <laughs> yes. enough. I'm not perfect enough. Look, in order to lead, in order to problem solve, you have to know all your strengths. And you have to be courageous enough to take the criticism, which is always the price of solving problems and leadership. So it's not false modesty. But humility says, I know what I'm good at. I know where I can add value. I'm strong. I'm courageous. And 
other people are too. I alone cannot fix it. I actually need other people. That's humility. I need other people. I need other people's perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so humility is critical because without it, we tend to think, it's my job to do it all by myself. And how often do women fall into that trap too? I'll just do it myself. It'll be easier if I do it myself. The problem is when we try and do it all by ourselves, we don't achieve as much actually. I think that's a really important observation. And I think it can oftentimes trip women up in particular in very significant ways. What are some of the other challenges? We still don't have very many women in the C-suite. You really were and are a trailblazer. There are more than there were when you were at the head of HP, but not many more. Um, What are some of the bigger obstacles in addition to that notion of humility that you just talked about? Well, you know, I think you're so right. First, there are more men named James who are CEOs in the Fortune 500 than there are women. Think about that. Mm. There are 400 plus of the largest companies in this country have no women on their boards. If you looked at the data, you would find that we've come a long way in the last 25 years, and yet the data really hasn't changed in terms of the number of women in the C-suite, the number of women in boardrooms, it hasn't changed at all. So there's something else going on. And I think honest, and by the way, let me just add one other fact. Corporate America spends $8 billion a year on diversity and inclusion training. (laughs) So we're spending all this money and it's really not working. And I think what we're running right up against now is the reality that people are most comfortable with people like them. People are most comfortable with people they already know. We're all like that. But if you have a bunch of men who are already there, they are going to be most comfortable with other men, and particularly with other men that they know. It feels, when you start dealing with people who are different than you are, it feels riskier. It's one of the reasons collaboration is difficult. And so I think what's happening now is we, a lot of organizations have decided that diversity is a nice to do, but they haven't figured out it's actually mission critical. I have built diverse teams all my career. And I will tell you that when you put a diverse team together, it's harder actually, Mm -hmm. because you can't finish each other's sentences, and you don't always understand exactly what the other person's going to say, and it does feel a little uncomfortable sometimes and risky to try and deal with someone who you really haven't dealt with before, and yet the outcomes are always better. The decision-making is more sound. You have more options. You are more creative. And that's because when each of us are challenged, we do better. We think better. We're more creative. That's just a fact. A neuroscientist will tell us that. So I think that women need to be um, willing and able, and I think we are, to collaborate with people very different from ourselves, but so do men. And men need to understand that if you are not tapping 
half the human potential in this country, in your company, in your community, you are harming yourself. It isn't a nice to do. It's a have to do now. Yeah. What advice would you have for individuals who are part of these organizations that are spending billions of dollars on diversity training without the results that, frankly, they say they want and that we all believe that we want? What's your advice for an individual who's in one of these organizations? What can they do to help move the ball more effectively? Well, first, I would say, in a piece of shameless promotion for my organization, is Uh, bring Carly Fiorina Enterprises in to actually do diversity and inclusion training in the way that we think is most effective based on experience. But on a more uh, individual-oriented note, to your point, I think we need to stop talking about diversity as a issue of respect or niceness. Being nice to each other is good. Being respectful is critically important. It's about effectiveness. So I'll give you a, an example, and then I'll answer your question directly. When I arrived at HP, the PC team, the personal computer team, not politically correct, <laughs> the personal computer team was complaining about their falling market share. We were eight, number eight in the market. Not a good place to be. And they had done research, and they said, well, all of our customers, the majority of our customers are middle-aged white males, and we do really well with engineers. And I said, who's on the design team? White middle-aged engineers. Who's on the marketing team? White middle-aged engineers. Well, here's the truth. If you want to appeal to a broader customer segment, you need to diversify your team. Because All these white male engineers, wonderful people, but they're missing a whole bunch of stuff. So the thing that I would say to an individual in an organization is don't talk about diversity as, gee, we need to get our numbers up. Find a problem that needs solved where your perspective is vitally important and then go help solve it. In business, in organizations, results matter. They actually do matter. That's what my career tells me, but I've seen it over and over again. I ended up in lots of places where people thought I had no value to add, but somehow if you produce results, people see you differently. Yeah. I mean, this, and it comes out in the book, I've heard you talk a lot about this, this notion of problem solving at finding finding a way to add value, which, which again, is oftentimes something that women can tend to struggle with, this notion of putting your head down, working really hard, hoping that people will notice you. Sometimes they do, but oftentimes they don't. Talk a bit more about this notion of making yourself, sort of understanding strategically where the organization's going and where you fit into that and how you can become a problem solver wherever it is that you sit. Yes. So, The first thing is to recognize that there are always loads of problems in organizations, and those problems tend to fester. People talk about them, they complain about them, they gossip about them, but they frequently just sit there. And the reason problems sit there is because problems are hard to solve. More importantly, they sit there because the status quo is powerful, always. The way things are even when it's not very good, 
The way things are is powerful. And so what happens in an organization is people kind of go along to get along. And frequently women Mm -hmm. go along to get along. So, okay, I see a problem, but, you know, nobody's really paying much attention to it. I'm not going to pay much attention to it. So counterintuitive though it may be, my advice to everyone, but women especially, is run to the problem. Don't be afraid of the problem. Run to the problem. And when you do, you're going to find people who are willing to collaborate with you, if you have the courage to lead them, to try and solve the problem. So it's not just keep your head down and do everything by yourself and sort of fit in. It's run to the problem and pick others' heads up with your own and start to solve it. Yeah. That can be scary, but that kind of result will get people noticed, will get noticed when you solve a problem. Absolutely. You talk in the book, and this is somewhat related, I think, you talk about did you call it the termite syndrome? It, it's basically yeah. We put our heads down <laughs> and we just we get on the same path day after day after day. I mean, we all do it, mm-hmm. uh, and we think we also. Uh, the story of the termite is: I, as a young girl, I was in Africa at fifteen, and I was looking at these huge mountains of dirt, and it turns out they were termite hills. And my African friend explained to me that the way those mounds get created is a termite gets on their path and they stay on it, moving their dirt day after day. It's their whole life. And then he said, you know, people can be a lot like termites. And we can get on our paths and we can put our heads down and we can dig our dirt. And there's a lot of dirt we got to dig. That's how it feels every day. And so sometimes we need to pick our heads up and look around. We need not to get confused between activity and impact. We can spend all day long on activities that feel productive, on moving mountains of dirt around that really don't make much difference, Mm -hmm. or we can get focused on impact. And impact requires making something better. And that means you got to solve a problem. And that means you got to work with others. Do you think it's hard for people to know the difference between activity and impact? Oh, my goodness, yes. And I think, by the way, that um, this era of technology and social media makes it even harder because we are bombarded, let's face it, all day long, 24-7, with urgent, urgent, urgent messages. And we feel like we have to respond. And of course, you can spend your entire day responding to things that actually don't matter at all. The other reality is that the town of Washington is a town all about power. And when you're about power, it's trappings that sometimes signal to people. I mean, my goodness, people are, how long should I have someone wait on the telephone for me? Do I dial the number myself or have an assistant dial for me? How long do I have somebody sit in a waiting room? All those little, I would say, frankly, silly trappings of power are consuming sometimes, but none of them make any difference, actually. Yeah. One piece of your work currently is a nonprofit. Uh, the Unlocking Potential Unlocking Foundation. Unlocking Potential, which is amazing. Talk about, share with our audience what that is, because it's an incredible concept. Well, what I know is that leaders are everywhere. It's just they don't know it. They don't know that's who they are. 
One of the things I also know is that people in nonprofit organizations all over this country are dealing with incredibly difficult problems. And yet nonprofits frequently don't get the same investment in human capital that we might take for granted in a business. So the Unlocking Potential Foundation is focused on bringing everything I know about problem solving and leadership and building effective and diverse teams to nonprofits in communities all across this nation. I've also learned that people closest to the problem know best how to solve it. And so I think we have a lot of problems in this country, in our communities, and I am convinced that a lot of those problems, most of those problems, maybe even none of those problems are going to get solved in Washington, D.C. They're going to get solved in community by people closest to them. And that means we have to lift up leaders wherever they are, and a whole lot of leaders are sitting in the nonprofit community Mm -hmm. dealing with very difficult problems, and so we're focused on lifting them up. Yeah. You launched the the foundation a year ago? Two years ago Two now, years yeah. ago. And are you seeing some evidence? I mean, it, investments of this kind can take a while to reap the benefits and rewards. How are you, what, what kinds of evidence are you seeing that it's really helping to shape the way that these nonprofits work and the way that these individuals lead? Well, we're so excited. We've had so many fantastic clients. Uh, we've done a lot of work with the Wounded Warrior Project, a lot of work with Easter Seals. Uh, We do work with organizations here in D.C. that focus on the homeless community, that focus on uh, improving health outcomes. We have corporate partnerships with American Express and Mass Mutual where these companies are bringing us into communities where they're investing in nonprofits, where their employees have an interest. One of the things that I think makes our work different than some other um, leadership approaches is we don't just have a once-and-done leadership lab. We follow it with six months of coaching uh, for individuals and for organizations. And we also are very deliberate about focusing on outcomes. So at the beginning of an engagement with an organization, which lasts for six months, we ask them, what problems are you trying to solve? What outcomes are you looking to achieve? And at the end of the six months, we measure it so that there's no confusion about whether or not it's working, there's impact, people are improving. And so we know by virtue of the clients we have served, by the new clients we are getting ready to serve, and by the metrics that we establish for these clients, that it is having a big impact. Yeah. Let's talk about talking to our children about leadership Mm -hmm. and when and how we should start. What's your advice for parents in terms of when and how to talk to your kids about leadership? Well, I would say initially, maybe you don't even have to use the term leadership, but you, I think about my own parents, I think about good parents that I know. It's never too early to start talking with your child about the importance of courage and being brave. And that, of course, means that we as parents have to be willing to allow our children to experience situations Mm -hmm. where they need to be brave. In other words, we can't be helicopter or steamroller parents all the time. It's never too early to talk to our children about integrity and character. I mean, I remember my parents, I can't remember a time when my parents weren't talking to me about those things. Why it's important to be humble. 
why it's important to be empathetic for someone else, why optimism gets you further than pessimism. Those are things that I think are all about the core of who we are. And so particularly in this culture that tends to focus on what do other people think of me, you know, we're always focused on what the outside thinks of us. That's what social media does. How many likes do I have? Who's my tribe? I think the most important thing in some ways that parents can do is talk to their children about the importance of who you are from the inside. Because who you are from the inside out really is the determinant in the kind of life you're going to lead and the kind of leader you're going to become. Yeah, that notion of how you're viewed from the outside and worrying about what people think can oftentimes, I think, have a gender component. I don't know if you agree with that, but I think women sometimes are a little more sensitive to what people think about them than men. What's your advice for not over personalizing <laughs> what other people think and say about you. You you had a presidential run. Anytime you jump into the big pool, that is tough, and it co- comes with it, um, you know, lots of criticism, <laughs> warranted or otherwise. How do you deal with that? What's your advice for people? Well, the thing I would say first is to recognize, this helped me when I finally understood this, Criticism is the price. So you have to decide, if I'm going to step out and not just be a termite or go with the flow or stick with my tribe, if I'm ever going to pick my head up and do anything, I am going to get criticized. Somehow that helps depersonalize a little bit. It's the price. It's the price. The second thing I would say is, Pay less attention to it. I know that sounds so basic, but I can remember being with Oprah Winfrey when I was the CEO of Hewlett Packard. She was teaching a class at Northwestern. She asked me to come and guest teach. And at that time, Oprah was going through some really tough press, and I was going through some really tough press. You know, when you're first, when you're different, you get a lot of tough press. Sure. And so I said to her, Oprah, how do you deal with this? And she said, I just don't read it. Now, Boy, is that easy to say and hard to do. But I took her advice. We spend in our culture inordinate amounts of time reading it, obsessing over it, tweeting about it. Just stop. Stop. Because in the end, what all these people who are criticizing you, the impact they have on you is your choice. There will always be critics. By the way, I would also quickly say to anyone, but particularly to women, criticism is different than feedback. We all need feedback, but feedback comes from someone who cares about you, who's trying to make you better, who wants to lift you up. Criticism comes from people who are just trying to put you down, and they're always there, and it's our choice. Are they going to put us down or not? Yeah. You said something so incredibly important. The distinction really is the source. Yes. The, the, the person from whom either the feedback or the criticism because... And their motivation. Yes. It can feel like 
as women, a lot of times, feedback can feel like criticism. And criticism can feel like feedback. Right. <laughs> but it's not. <laughs> it's really not. Yeah. I mean, you know the difference between, I mean, we all know, pick a silly example. You know, um, often the tone in which uh, something is delivered can tell you the difference between criticism and feedback as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, your path running for president, you had had an incredibly successful career as a CEO. You jumped in a couple of years ago to run for president. What was that experience like? Well, first, as I've said, I run to problems. I, I find I like problem solving. I like challenge. So I saw a problem. I saw a problem with a political process. I saw a problem with too much power concentrated in Washington. I saw a problem with a um, political discourse that was mm, superficial and nasty. And so I knew it was a tall hill, but I thought, I think I can make an impact in delivering a message in a way that is different. Um, so what was that like? I, I have no regrets. I think I learned a lot about how broken our political process actually is. I think I understand much better why George Washington said way back in 1789, the trouble with political parties is they will come to care only about winning. And I learned that the dynamics of winning are not the same as the dynamics of problem solving. Mm. Uh, when you're very focused on winning, someone else has to be losing. And that's kind of what our politics feels like now. It's a sports spectacle, honestly. I win, you lose, my team, your team, my tribe's good, your tribe's bad. But that's not the dynamic of problem solving. The dynamic of problem solving is collaborating with people that we don't always agree with and finding win-wins. Because it's only if both sides win that you get to a solution to a problem actually it's one of the reasons i said earlier that i don't think problems get solved in washington that's why we're focused on communities now um i also learned that the nature of political discourse and it's been vitriolic for a long time. It's been win-lose for a long time. It's been character assassination of people we disagree with for a long time. But that type of dialogue is infecting sort of everything. And I think that's really problematic. We have to be able to work with people that we don't always agree with. We have to be able to have empathy for people who are different than ourselves. And that's one of the reasons I'm so focused on this work now. It's one of the reasons I wrote this book. Politics cannot infect our individual ability to lead, to collaborate, con to contribute, to have an impact. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, your race for president was unsuccessful. How did you bounce back from that? How did you feel after that process had ended? See, I didn't feel as though I had to bounce back. What do you because mean? Because it didn't, well, it didn't feel like a failure to me. It didn't, uh, I ran uh, knowing it was 
very long odds. I was prepared to win and do the job, but I was also always thoroughly prepared to lose and do something else. And so I want how I ran, the way I ran mattered hugely to me. There were certain things I wasn't going to say. There were certain things I wasn't going to do because I don't believe in selling my soul ever. The ends don't justify every means. And so at the end of that run, I was at peace with how I'd done it. I was satisfied that I'd given it everything I had. And I was prepared to go on and do something else. Yeah. Let's talk a bit about fear. Um, Fear can be a big one. We talk about fear on this podcast a lot. What do you do? What's your advice for individuals when they're facing something scary, even if it's something as basic as going in and asking your boss for a raise or promotion or jumping in and volunteering for a new assignment or just sort of overcoming that notion of fear? What's your advice for dealing with that? Well, I talk a lot about this in my book, and there's a reason that when I talk to people about unlocking their own potential, I always start with fear. Because fear can be debilitating. And the fears don't have to be profound. They can be kind of silly and superficial. I'm going to look stupid. I'm going to make a mistake. People are going to criticize me. Those are debilitating fears. And so first I would say courage takes practice. And courage isn't the absence of fear. It's overcoming fear. The tools that I have used in my life are to think through to write it down if necessary. What's the worst thing that can happen here? And what am I afraid of? My first client meeting when I was a young woman was held in a strip club. I was terrified. And so I wrote down, what am I so afraid of? I've learned it helps to actually articulate, right? What am I so afraid of? It turns out what I wrote down is, I'm afraid I'm going to look like a fool. Yep, check the box, I did. I'm afraid because I've never been in this situation before. Yep. What's the worst thing that can happen? Well, actually, the worst thing that can happen is I don't show up, and then everybody thinks I don't want to do my job. I need to show up. In other words, we have to unpack our fear, understand it, name it, and then think through, What's the worst thing that can happen? And the interesting thing to me, having practiced this over and over and over, is there also always a best thing that can happen. That horrific day in the strip club, I couldn't imagine what the best thing that could happen was. But the best thing that happened is I had this moment of kinship with women in that strip club who understood exactly what was going on and respected me, wow, that was the best thing that could happen. And the other best thing that happened was when I came back to the office, the guy who'd forced the meeting into the strip club, his stock had fallen dramatically in the office, and my stock had risen because people said, you know what, she's got some guts and he's a jerk. Mm. So if we can get over the worst thing that can happen, sometimes really good things happen. Yeah. Courage takes practice. Yeah. 
Does the fear ever go away? Eventually, but it takes a long time. And I guess what I would say is I've come to the stage in my life where I'm really not afraid of anything anymore. But I, I would say it takes a while to get there. And in many cases, I'm not afraid of anything because honestly, some of the worst things I could ever imagine have happened to me. Facing death, facing disease. What I would say though is as you practice courage, as you name your fear, you can tackle bigger fears. Um, going into a strip club seemed like the hugest thing ever. When I came to be a CEO of Hewlett Packard, I could tackle the fear of, oh my gosh, we're going to take on the largest merger ever attempted in technology history. And I could figure out a way to get through that fear because it was the right move to make. Yeah. A big part of the story that you just told is somewhat unique to women. Not that it would be ever appropriate to have a business meeting in a strip club, in my personal opinion. Bad behavior still goes on yes, in offices does. around this country. Yep. Hopefully people, women and men, are much more self-aware and also much more hopefully empowered to say something when something like that is happening. But it does happen. What's your advice for dealing with people like that, those jerks that still exist out yeah. there? So the first thing I would say is we have to make distinctions between truly bad behavior and people who are just clueless, careless, thoughtless, afraid. In other words, sometimes we actually do have to work with people that are uncomfortable. I actually became a great teammate to the guy that took me in the strip club. We worked it out. Did you talk about it? No, we never talked about it. But what I learned was that he was afraid of me. The reason he was diminishing me is because he thought, ooh, brand new model with the MBA, she's trying to take my job away from me. I had to have some empathy for him. And I also had to have enough humility to understand, you know what? He knows the clients. He knows the company. It's in my interests to work with him. So sometimes we have to forgive careless, clueless, thoughtless behavior. And we have to realize sometimes people are afraid because they're confronting a new situation and maybe they're acting out. Then there's truly bad behavior. There's the boss who introduced me as, here's Carly, our token bimbo. That is bad behavior. And then you have to confront. And I did confront him, went in his office, shut the door and said, you will never speak to me that way again. Or I tell stories in the book of men who behave badly to many people whom I had to confront. So we have to be thoughtful about who do we confront, what is truly bad behavior. And there is truly bad behavior out there. And it needs to be confronted, not just by women, but by men as well, which I've talked publicly about. Sometimes men sit back and wait for women to handle it. And men have to man up too and confront bad behavior. But sometimes we're just dealing with clueless, thoughtless, careless behavior. Yeah. It's probably a little hard to know the difference. Yes, it is. And sometimes we should never underestimate the power of an honest conversation. There's nothing wrong with sitting down. Carl and I, that was the colleague who took me to the strip club, I didn't confront him about it at the time. We came to laugh about it later, and he came to see my point of view. But... There's nothing wrong with sitting down and having a 
an open conversation with someone and saying, this is how I feel when you act this way. This is how you make other people feel when you act this way. This is the consequence to you of your behavior, which is clueless and thoughtless and careless. Have the courage to have an honest conversation with someone. They may thank you for it. Yeah, it's great advice. I have been fascinated by many of the things that you've talked about related to not having a plan, that you didn't really have your life all charted out from the point in which you went to college. Talk about the value, because I think you describe it as the value of not having a plan that probably surprises people. What is the value of not having a plan? And what do you mean by that? Well, in my book, Find Your Way, I talk to people about the difference between being on the path and getting attached to a plan. The path is one of courage and character, humility, empathy, and collaboration, seeing possibilities, making an impact, solving problems, leading. That path always leads you to bigger things, better things, and opportunities. A plan is when somebody gets hung up on a destination. I thought I was going to be a lawyer. I went off to law school. Then the plan blew up because I hated law school. I see so many people get attached to a plan that sounds a lot like, I need to make this much money by this time. I have to be in this job by this time. I have to be married by this time. I want to have this many kids by this time. We get attached to all these destinations. And the problem is when people get attached to a plan like that, in my experience, one of three things happens. Number one, they get there, but they have sold so much of their soul to get there that they're not at all who they ought to be by the time they arrive. Number two, they get there and it isn't what they thought it would be. Oh my gosh, I hate law school. Oh my gosh, this job isn't really what I wanted. Oh my gosh, I had a you know, spectacular wedding and I'm miserable in a marriage. It's not what we expect. Or number three, we don't get there at all. And then people are devastated. I've also seen that people get so hung up on the destination that they miss all the opportunities in front of them. They're so focused. They're termite-like. I'm headed for the plan. They miss everything that's going on around them. So get on the right path. Find your way to solving the problems that you were meant to solve. Find your way to unlocking your highest potential. But don't get into this mindset of, if I just get here then everything's going to be all right. Yeah. Let's talk for a second about legacy. What do you hope your legacy will be? Oh, my gosh. I hope I have a long time to go before I worry about <laughs> legacy. <laughs> uh, because I, as my previous answer maybe uh, illustrated, I don't have a plan for five years out. I don't have a plan for 10 years out. But I hope today and every day now and in the future. I am known for who I am from the inside out. Am I a person of integrity? Am I a person of courage? Am I a generous, collaborative, humble and empathetic person? Do I see possibilities? Do I have an impact? Do I make a difference? Do I solve problems? Do I lift others up? I hope that is how I am every day. It's how I strive to be every day, and I hope that will be how I'm known in the future. Yeah, 
One final question. We ask everyone on the podcast for a single piece of advice, a life hack, a mantra. It can be something you tell yourself, something that you've told your children, your grandchildren. You've given us already amazing advice, but if you had to distill it down to one thing that's kind of your North Star, what would that be? Find your own way. I will quote my mother, I guess. She said to me when I was a little girl, what you are is God's gift to you. What you make of yourself is your gift to God. And what we make of ourselves comes from the inside out. Absolutely beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so so much. much. Really a pleasure to be here with you. To learn more about Carly, you can visit our website at www.shesaidshesaidpodcast.com. There we will include some show notes. We'll include some photos from today's visit. You'll also find links to carlyfiorina.com, links to Carly's amazing podcast. By example, she just did a great three-part series with legendary management leadership consultant John Maxwell, which is truly fantastic. So make sure and check that out as well. You'll also find links to her fabulous book, Find Your Way. As always, thanks so much for listening.